Thank you, Pastor Nathan, for that prayer. It's good to see you, church. I hope that you are doing well. I hope that you have come with a heart that's ready to hear the Word of God. You were singing quite well this morning, so thank you for that. Uh, I'm excited about this particular passage that we're going to cover. I'm going to do something a little bit daring. We're going to be covering uh, the rest of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Uh, And the reason for that is um, this chunk of history that I want to focus on uh, is a crucial chunk of history. And it's, I would say also too, it's one of the most challenging narratives that I've studied in quite a while. And yes, that even includes a couple of weeks ago where we uh, saw about how these people were eating their own children. Uh, this one's a little bit more challenging than that, uh, only because, um, yes, I know some people were snickering because that was a funny chapter to, to cover in some ways. Uh, you, it's not every day that you hear about people eating each other on Sunday morning, but that's what you get at Stonington, I guess. I don't know. Um, no, not really. But this one is somewhat similar. I, I don't mean to like uh, focus on so many quote-unquote rated R passages, uh, but that's really what we're about to get into. Um, That's what we're about to see as what we're about to cover through these next several verses and uh, stories here is some of the most gruesome accounts in scripture. It's filled with graphic imagery as this historian, again, this historian is taking uh, exiled Israelites, remember, he's sort of taking them by the hand and leading them through their own history, reminding them of what occurred that led them to this point where now they're existing in exile. And essentially, that's what he does for you and I, too. He takes us by the hand and he, he walks us through what I've likened to call this smoldering carnage that surrounds the throne of Jehu. We just read, as Pastor Nathan did, the first 10 verses of chapter 9, which is his anointing by one of these prophets that studies under Elisha. And yes, this King Jehu, as he will be known, is a king who does a lot of questionable things, as we're going to get into. Some troubling things, some disturbing things. Things that uh, rightly should make the the backs, the skin on the back of our necks sort of stand up. That sort of stuff. And yet, jump with me all the way to the end of chapter 10. Because he, he carries out all of these pretty violent scenes. And then notice what God says. God says to him in verse 30 of chapter 10. And the Lord said to Jehu, because thou hast done well. In executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab, according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Hmm. He is directly responsible for a lot of carnage, and yet God seemingly gives him the stamp of approval. Good job. Well done, Jehu. Needless to say, Jehu is a really complicated figure, and he would, I would say, is the only reason why we would ever try and keep all of these passages together, because he is their central figure. And what we're going to see, basically, is just how Jehu is being used by God to sort of execute judgment on God's own people. And as we get to sit back and watch that, watch that unfold, I think a couple of things will occur. Most Predominantly, I would say, is we get to see how God's sovereignty works really mightily, if I can say that, through uh, people, through hands that are less than reputable. (laughs) The point of the story is not to repeat Jehu's actions. I think we're to stand back 
and marvel at how God can use anyone to execute his will, to execute his purposes, to bring about what he wants to bring about. And in fact, I think that's one of the reactions I pray that we have. I pray that we have this sort of, I've called it a knee-bending marvel at Yahweh's authority. His authority ought to make us prostrate, especially as we see it here. But then also, I think another reaction we ought to have, as I will return to at the end, is just a jaw-dropping gratitude. That you and I are not dealt with as those who are in these narratives are dealt with. We have someone much better than Jehu that comes for us. We begin in chapter 8, though, because we're going to close out the remainder of chapter 8. We left off at verse 15, so picking up at verse 16, the, through the end of the, this chapter, it sort of almost functions, not to diminish it, but it functions almost like a preface, a historical preface to what's about to come. Because in chapters 9 and 10, of course, uh, they are uh, sort of set up by what is here recounted at the end of chapter 8. And after focusing uh, almost predominantly, almost singularly on the northern kingdom of Israel for much of these first eight chapters, finally the historian returns to mention the southern kingdom of Judah right here. This is the first mention of it in quite a while. And he recounts in verse 16 how Jehoshaphat had the son named Jehoram who began to reign. It says there, in the fifth year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king, or excuse me, Joram, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. It's sort of like a, a, a going back to that old pattern, perhaps you remember from the book of 1 Kings where it was this king uh, came after this king and he walked in these ways and he was bad and he did these things. And it's just sort of a summary of what this king accomplished. It's almost fleeting, almost passing. But it's interesting what he mentions in verse 18 because we have that same old pattern coming back and resurfacing again. The same old, same old. One vile king being replaced by another vile king. And yet this time, there's even more horrid, awful results. Because notice, verse 18, And he, talking about Jehoram, walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoram's father-in-law was Ahab. (laughs) Not a great guy to have in your family as part of your family ties, so to speak. So now, these kingdoms of Israel and Judah are now realigned once again. Except the only thing that realigns them, that reconnects them, is this bond that they have with this family of Ahab. Not a good connecting point. Not something that you would like to sort of relish in. And as we're soon going to find out, it, I think what is brought to bear, one of the things that's brought to bear in this passage is that the company that you keep can often have really disastrous results. And that's going to come to fruition. Because I, little did Judah know, little did Jehoshaphat know that when he married his son to Ahab's daughter, that one of the wedding gifts that he was going to be given was this disease known as Ahab's house. Because he mentions it there, the historian does, that he was, uh, notice, as did the house of Ahab. But then notice verse 25. 
Because Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, he comes to the throne. And notice what continues. Look at verse 25. And the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, which is Ahab's dad, king of Israel. And notice... And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab. For he was the son in the law of the house of Ahab. Three times in one verse, the historian is getting it into our brains that he's walking in the ways of Ahab. He's following that really treached, really awful, wicked path that Ahab sort of carved out for all the kings that would follow him. He's following in perhaps his great-granddaddy's footsteps and not doing well for the rest of the nation. And so essentially the point is here this. Now we have Israel. They are far gone into wickedness and depravity and sin. And now Judah is joining them and relishing in that pit of iniquity and infidelity and ruin. We could rightly just say that what that story, I think, is emphasizing is almost like that this Ahab's house is almost like a cancer. And it's metastasized now in both kingdoms, bearing awful results. And the only option that's available that will do anything for any good for either of these nations is one thing, and it's called surgery. They can't. I don't want to continue this metaphor even further, but if you, if you will, if you'll allow me, they can't undergo chemotherapy. They have to go under the knife. They have to go under God's judgment. That's what I mean by that. God's surgery is God's judgment. And little do they know that even, yes, at the end of this chapter, both nations, if you will, I'm going to continue this metaphor, they've already been wheeled into the OR, and the surgeon is already ready. They don't know it. They aren't aware of it. But that's exactly what the stakes have been set up for us here at the end of chapter 8. Judah and surgery are about, or Judah and Israel are about to undergo surgery, and they aren't even aware of it. Because notice what happens. Ahaziah and Jehoram, they decide to make war with that old guy that we talked about last time, Haziel, the king of Syria. So they go up and make war with him. And it just so happens, as it says for us in verse 28, that, that Joram, the, the king of, of Israel, he gets injured. He gets wounded on the battlefield fighting at Ramoth-Gilead with, uh, with the, the army of Judah against the armies of Syria. And it says in King Joram, verse 29, went back in, to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. So you have this battle going on, and then now the king flees the battlefield to go and recuperate. And the other king, his business partner, comes to visit him. So you have two kingdoms without kings present to oversee their thrones, as their armies are off in another place doing battle. That's the setup, so to speak. Judah and Israel are in the operating room, and they don't even see it. They don't even notice it. And that's where we get to chapter 9. 
Because while all that is going on, notice what Elisha is doing. He is preparing one of his prophetic students to go on a most important mission. Again, verse 1. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, and take this box of oil in thy hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out where Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. And then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. He's to go, go to the battlefield, find Captain Jehu and anoint him with oil as king over Israel. And as soon as you do that, don't dilly-dally, don't have a cup of coffee, don't waste your time, get out of town. And that's the reason why we know that this is somewhat, we could say, risky business. Because he says, get out of there. Hightail it out of there because you will be a marked man after this. Essentially, what Elisha has just commissioned this young prophet to do is to divinely sanction an overthrow of the Israelite throne. (laughs) It's divinely sanctioned uh, uh, sort of insurrection. Because there's still a king alive. And he says, I want you to go and anoint this guy king. It's very uh, troubling sort of waters, which I'm sure that this this young student, if you look at verse 4, it calls him a young man twice. He was probably an adolescent, uh, late teens, early 20s sort of young man. And he's given this really important mission. I'm sure that when Elisha is speaking to him, he was greeted by this news with wide eyes and raised eyebrows. (laughs) You want me to do what now? (laughs) But to be sure, just remember, this isn't Elisha just kind of fiddling around and and having some fun with political people. (laughs) This is not a conspiracy that he has contrived. If you go all the way back, you don't have to, but if you can, if you can mark it down, go all the way back to 1 Kings 19, and this is the fulfillment of 1 Kings 19. If you remember at uh, at the end of that scene where Elijah... Elisha's predecessor is on, uh, on uh, the mount and he sees the image of God come by. And he sees the fact that God speaks through the low, uh, be, the, the still small voice and all that kind of stuff. And then God gives him a commission. We kind of mentioned this last week too. He was to anoint Elisha and he was to anoint Haziel and he was, he was to anoint Jehu. Those three were sort of parts of his mission, part of his commission as the latter days of his prophetic ministry. Last week we saw Haziel crowned, fulfillment of that. And now we have here, yes, the fulfillment of that latter part with Jehu being anointed just as God's word prophesied. So the young man goes, verse 4, he flees, he makes haste to Ramoth Gilead to go and carry out his mission. I get these like Mission Impossible vibes, you know, like I get that theme in my head when I hear about this guy going to the field because he's not wanting to draw a lot of attention to himself. He's trying to do something sneaky, trying to get in and get out as fast as he can. And that's somewhat he does. He barges into this tent. 
I, I just imagine Jehu and all of his captain buddies, they've perhaps come in after a long day on the battlefront, and now they're here, and they're trying to just unwind. They're, they're perhaps conversing and drinking and talking, and they're, and they're trying to unwind from a long day of making war. And all of a sudden, this, this crazy preacher walks in and says, I have business with you, Jehu. And so he says, okay, and they go to a private corner, and they, they start talking. And that's where this young prophet, perhaps still out of breath, perhaps still nervous over about what he's trying to say, what he's about to say. And he takes out his box and he pours oil over this captain, this war-torn captain. And declares this word of prophecy over him. Listen, verse 6. And he arose and went into the house and poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I have anointed the king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab, thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. This is... A most critical, most important prophecy that is laid upon the shoulders of this captain here, Captain Jehu. You see, he's just been ordained by Yahweh to be his scalpel, if you will. He, Jehu, functions as God's instrument of judgment on God's people. Through him, he was about to judge. Again, you'll notice how often it's repeated there, the house of Ahab. Through a swift and terrible and severe judgment. And I think it's fascinating too that that is what is most concerning. And we could say in God's judgmental concern. Most predominant. Is avenging his prophets because they lost their lives at who? The house of Ahab and his wicked bride Jezebel. For all of their pomp. For all of their pride, for all their self-aggrandizing, Ahab and his ilk would be rendered just like everyone else. They would be rendered to basically an historical afterthought. You notice that's essentially what this prophecy says in verse 9. It should just be like one of the others. Like one of the other ones that rejected me, rejected my word. That's what we're going to make this house of Ahab. And I had to ask myself a question. Why all this holy fury for Ahab? Isn't he already dead? Yeah, he is actually. He died in 1 Kings chapter 22. He already succumbed to his fate. Quick sidebar, plant. Remember what happened at the end of Ahab's life. He's given this prophecy of what is about to come to him. This awful fate is about to come to his house. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 21. The prophet there comes and warns him about this looming judgment that's about to come on his house. And remember what happens? Ahab repents. Can you believe it? Ahab falls on the ground in sackcloth and ashes and he's repenting. Somewhat. 
And it leads to this delayed sort of season of judgment. If you remember there, Elijah gives him this word that the judgment that was about to come on him will not happen yet, but it'll happen in your son's days, i.e. right here. That postponed judgment is now coming due, and that's what Jehu represents. He's a figure, yes, of judgment, of, yes, we could say holy righteousness, working through some, as we're about to see, some very curious means. So he's anointed, standing in that tent. <laughs> and the young prophet scurries out. He, he hightails it out of Ramoth Gilead, perhaps to go back to where Elisha was. And Jehu returns. He tries to sit down with his, with his comrades. And they begin just peppering him with questions. It says in verse 11, Then Jehu came forth to the servants of his Lord. And one said to him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? And he said unto them, Ye know the man and his communication. <laughs> Jehu tries to just brush it off. You know what those crazy preachers of Yahweh are like? They're all crazy. He just came in and was just saying crazy words. <laughs> He's a mad fellow. <laughs> you know what those preachers are like? But his friends aren't really buying it. They, they don't, they, they can see that he's not, he's being cagey. He's not being uh, truthful. So essentially they, they tell him, it's false what you're telling us. Give us the scoop. Verse 12, and they said, it is false. Tell us now. And he said, thus, and thus spake he to me, saying, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Perhaps he couldn't get all the oil out of his hair. He just had oil poured all over him. He couldn't wipe it all out. Or perhaps he was just so excited at the last part of that prophecy over the idea that he's going to be king. So he's out there gleaming. Wouldn't you? I mean, you know how when someone says something to you and you only hear the one part, but you don't hear all the others? I imagine that was Jehu. He didn't hear, you're going to wreak havoc on this house. All he heard was, I'm going to be made king. That was the words. I'm I'm conjecturing, but I think I imagine if I know the human heart, that's what he heard. Because he comes out and he can't really hide the fact that what has just happened. He is now anointed king. And look at what his friends do. Then they hasted, verse 13, and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets saying, Jehu is king. They immediately recognize him as king, which I think tells us all we need to know about Joram's approval rating. Not very high. And with that, Jehu's been anointed, all of his comrades, and we can imagine that most of the military, if not all of the military that was there in Ramath Gilead, they're now all behind Jehu. A full-scale insurrection is now in swing. And he makes a beeline for that place that we mentioned earlier, that place called Jezreel. Look at verse 16. And so Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, and was come down to see Joram. What's like the first rule of an insurrection? Number one, win over the heart of the military. Number two, you want to take out the guy that was uh, in front of you, your incumbent ruler. So he makes a beeline, sprinting with all of his men, his company of chariots, to, yes, that place, that place called Jezreel. And I think he knew that 
Perhaps he could do that swiftly, considering Joram's health. Remember, Joram is injured. He's incapacitated somewhat. And here he is now trying to recuperate and heal from all of his injuries. And yet, as they make haste to that place, a cloud of dust is stirred up by Jehu's company of chariots and just the intensity of their approach to that fortress. And a watchman spies them out in verse 17. He sees on the horizon this just dust cloud of of chariots coming at them over the horizon. And eventually they decide to send out messengers. They're trying to send out messengers to see if, if, is Jehu coming with peaceful intentions or with nefarious intentions? Does he come as a friend or as a foe? But both of those messengers don't come back, which I would take a pretty good sign as to what was about to occur. But Joram, he doesn't see it that way. He eventually uh, decks himself out, gets in his chariot, and yes, the king himself, injured, perhaps still grieving, still wounded King Joram, is now riding out to meet Jehu himself. Verse 21, and Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready, and Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out against Jehu to meet and met him in the portion of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And it came to pass, when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, Is it peace? And he answered, that is, Jehu answers, listen to this, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of my mother, of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many, there cannot be any peace. So long as you and your ilk are still alive, so long as you and all who have come from your mom are still alive, there can be no peace. To be quite frank, I think Joram should have figured out what all this ruckus was about prior to this moment. When his two messengers didn't come back, you would think that, oh, two plus two equals this. This guy doesn't have good intentions. Yet it's not until right here that he figures it out. Those intentions, they're not about peace. They're not about friendship. Look at verse 23. And Joram turned his hands and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery. It's a trap. He starts running, hightailing it back to Jezreel. I don't know how far away he and Jehu were. But regardless, as soon as he understands and recognizes the moment, Joram and all of his chariots and his bodyguards, they start sprinting back to Jezreel. They're trying to make it back. (laughs) And as all that's going on, what does Jehu do? He notches an arrow into his bow and pulls it back, it says in verse 24, with his full strength. And he he lets it go. Verse 24, and Jehu drew a bow with his full strength and smote Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow went out at his heart. And he sunk down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. And the Lord and I will requite this in this plat, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him into the plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. See, Jehu sees himself as doing Yahweh's work. (laughs) 
He sees himself as keeping in line with the words of the Lord. Yes, by killing this disgraced king and leaving his body to rot in the field. That's what he does. He lets an arrow go, and yes, with that, the judgment had begun. But he doesn't stop there. As the rest of chapter number 9, or the rest of that little portion there concludes that they, they chased after Ahaziah too. They chase after him and get him as well. And then, that's not enough either. He goes back. He turns his attention back to Jezreel. Because who's still there? Yes, the infamous Queen Jezebel. This is just, again, conjecture. But I imagine that when the news of Jehu's uprising was, was spreading and it finally reached all the way back to the ears of Jezebel, I wonder, and I have to imagine, that it didn't take long for her to just resign to her fate. There was no derailing. There was no sort of stopping or thwarting what Jehu had started. It was a full insurrection. He had all of this army power behind him. There's no stopping it now. And such is why we get verse number 30, which is such an interesting verse. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face and tired her head and looked out at a window. She does her makeup and does her hair. <laughs> That's what that means. <laughs> She's getting all dolled up, perhaps her last gasp of pride, as she faces her fate. That's what she's doing. And she gives this smart aleck remark to Jehu when he walks through the door. And yet when he arrives, advocates of his cause come out of the woodwork, so to speak. Verse number 33. And he said, throw her down. So they, the followers of Jehu, threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trod her underfoot. <laughs> This, of course, was the fate exactly as Elijah had prophesied. If you turn to 1 Kings 21, you can read about it in verse number 23. But look at verses 35 through 37 here. It says, And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palm of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, And the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field and the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, this is Jezebel. She's unrecognizable. That's how swift and severe this judgment comes upon her at the hands of Jehu. Yes, now she is an unrecognizable corpse in that field. If you want to get a glimpse at how cold-blooded Jehu was, look at what happens in verse 34. He's just commanded his men, throw out Jehu, or throw out Jezebel out the window. And then it says, and when he was coming, he did eat and drink. <laughs> he goes down and makes a sandwich. Makes himself a little drink, a sweet tea, a little, perhaps an egg salad sandwich or something. And he's sitting there eating while his men are throwing Jezebel out the window. <laughs> That's Jehu. <laughs> He's a cold-blooded judge. And yet, believe it or not, he's not done. You would think that that would be enough. You would think that all of that, man, he's had his fill. But that's when we get to chapter 10. Which then, 
records for us a trio of basically just whole-scale massacres that have been organized by Jehu himself. We're not going to cover all these verses, but you can read about them. I challenge you to read them. They're difficult verses, difficult passages. In the first 11 verses of chapter 10, it tells about how he slaughters the 70 sons of Ahab. Sons there, meaning followers. He hears that there's still some who are loyal to Ahab and his throne, and he makes a way for them to be absolutely demolished and beheaded. In verses 12 and 14, it talks about how he kills the other 42 brothers, the other 42 followers of Ahaziah. He's cleaning house. His death count is getting very high by this point. 42, 70, and then in verses 18 down through verse 28, what happens is he gets all of the followers of the the church of Baal. He gets them together through this, yes, very duplicitous, very deceitful scheme. He basically makes it appear as if he's going to make Baal the new religion of the realm. He appears very trustworthy. We're going to honor Baal. I only want Baal people here in the congregation. Oh, and by the way, if you follow Baal, make sure you get one of our special jackets, a very special red jacket with a target on the back. Don't worry about that. Just come in and wear it. (laughs) Make sure you wear it and sit near the front. And then what does he do? He locks the doors and has his men ambush all of the followers of Baal. Because they had special vestments on. He planned it all, Jehu did. He didn't want any followers of Yahweh there. If you follow Jehovah, don't come. This is only for Baal people. And he slaughters them. He ambushes them. This is Jehu. The story in verse, I just, it, it just as I was reading it, popped back into my head. The story at the beginning is likely one of the more darker stories. Even darker than that, if you can imagine. This ambush at a church service. In verses 10 through, 1 through 11 of chapter 10, what does he do? He sends this letter to the people. I'll try and summarize it, not read the whole thing. Uh, he, he sends this letter to the people that are watching over these 70 sons, these 70 followers of Ahab. And he threatens them, come out and fight me. And they're not interested in doing that. So then he sends them another letter. Okay, on such and such a time, I want you to go out and chop off the heads of all of the 70 sons. And then I want you to mail their heads to me, at postmark Jez, uh, Jezreel. So they do that. These followers, they, they chop off all the heads of these 70 sons and they mail the heads to, to him at Jezreel. And then what does he do? He stacks them in two stacks and he uses them as an object lesson to speak to the people. This is... Jehu, I don't mean to be so gory, but this is the judgment that Jehu deals. This is what he dispenses. He's merciless. In fact, look at verse 11. Notice this phrase. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, and all his great men, and his kinsfolk, and his priests, until he left none remaining. Look at verse 14. And he took, and he said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house, even two and 40, uh, 40 men. Neither left he any of them. This is Jehu. His exploits are filled with graphic imagery, violence, justice, we might say. 
Brigham Guest, all the followers of Ahab and the followers of Baal to appalling end. And yet, verse number 30 of chapter 10. And the Lord said to Jehu, because thou hast done well. I would say one thing is that this is, I think, in one way we could say it. This is what Yahweh's judgment looks like. It looks like carnage and carcasses. It's not a pretty sight, not in the slightest, which means two things. That when you pray for the day of the Lord, this is what you're praying for. When you're praying for God to come back, this is part of that. Judgment that looks like this. It's not a light thing to pray uh, uh, pray for the day of the Lord to come back. Because it means that his judgment comes. And when his judgment comes, those who are not part of his family, those, yes, who are not covered by the blood of the Lamb, this is the fate that awaits them. Which I would say incites and ought to inspire our evangelistic heart. We don't want, I don't want anyone to succumb to fates such as these. We have the good news to tell them. But what are we to make of all this? All of this bloodshed, all of this violence, all of this beheading, (laughs) this rated R imagery in the book of Kings. And what are we to make of Jehu? Remember what I said at the top? We have, I would say, two responses, at least the two responses that most struck me from this passage. Number one, a knee-bending marvel at Yahweh's authority. And number two, a jaw-dropping gratitude that you and I are not dealt with as nearly as grimly as all this. I think Jehu shows us clearly that God does use wicked people to carry out his designs and plans. As we have examined, Jehu was not an upstanding guy. There's going to be no Sunday school lesson that says, go out and be a Jehu. That's not going to be in any Sunday school curriculum that I know of. And indeed, even though he says in verse 16 of chapter 10 that he has zeal for the Lord... I think there's more than just zeal for Jehovah that is motivating him in all that he does. Because he accomplishes some good things, but it comes at some very bad means through some very wicked and nefarious methods. Lying and conniving and conspiring and all that. And yet, what was God doing? He was using him authoritatively, sovereignly, as an instrument of divine judgment. And I would say that's the comforting extent of Yahweh's authority. Everything is at his disposal. He's the ruler over all things. Everything that is made up of atoms, he has control of. He has authority over. He has sovereignty over. Everything it has his disposal, which means he can use anything and everything to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Yes, Even wicked, horrible kings and nations and dictators he can use to carry out his will. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. Go with me. you got to see this verse. It's amazing. Jeremiah, write down these verses because I'm not going to read them just for sake of time. But write down Jeremiah 51, 20 through 23 because he talks about the same thing. But in the meantime, go to Isaiah chapter 10 because... (laughs) Watch what he talks about here. It's amazing. 
He talks about, uh, let's see, where is my verse? Um, let's see, I'll read in verse number five. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. You see what he's saying here? He's going to rise up Assyria to go and be the rod of his anger and indignation at his own people. And that the sword that they carry and that they unsheathe is nothing but, yes, what does he say? It's my indignation in their hand. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. (laughs) Again, what is he talking about? He's using Assyria as a scalpel of judgment, as as more perhaps accurately to the text, as a battle axe of judgment. And yet, what does he say? Look at verse 15. Or let me see, uh, verse 13. For he saith, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest of riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. And then verse 15, I love this. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it, as if the rod should shake against itself, should shake, excuse me, should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift itself up, as if it were no wood? You see what he's saying? The axe has no authority apart from what the one who wields it has. Jehu was an instrument of judgment, but he had no authority except by which he was given by God. We can be comforted, yes, I think, by that. That those battle axes of judgment that appear and pop up in our world, they are not without a leash. They do not just run uh, abandoned uh, by anything that could confine them. They are confined and controlled by, yes, this God who rules over all things. He's the one wielding them. He's the surgeon with the scalpel in his hands. And that scalpel has no ability to cut except and apart from the surgeon himself. Yes, the, the Lord unfurls his judgment. And often his judgment can make us squirm. It ought to make us squirm like we've read apart, uh, read just here this morning. (laughs) But the axe is not mightier than the one who holds it, nor the scalpel. Those instruments of judgment are not stronger than the judge himself. Who knows what God is doing in our moment here in 2022? What is he using as an instrument of judgment? My friends, it is not mightier than he who is the judge himself. He's wielding whatever he decides, whatever he determines, whatever is at his disposal to accomplish all things according to his word. That is a comforting thought, regardless of what the world might look like. There's comfort in this judge who has no one above him, who has no one higher than him. And I think... That's sort of what was Jehu's downfall. This notion that he was being used by God. I just get this sense as I read 
and this is not explicitly stated, so forgive me, but I think that idea that he was being used by God sort of went to his head. I am God's instrument of judgment. Look at me and how authority, how authoritative I am. Which is where we get this accurate referendum on Jehu's reign. If you go back to 2 Kings 10 verse 29. He does some good stuff. He gets the stamp of approval in verse number 30. But listen to verse 29. How be it from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. Jehu did not depart from after them. To wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. In verse number 31, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. I told you that Jeroboam would come up again. 1 Kings 12, he sets up those two golden calves and those two places of worship and ruin all of the religion in that nation. And they're coming to roost again. It's interesting. For as fierce. As Jehu was. In his revolution against the throne. The irony is. That his revolution didn't go far enough. Stopped just short. Of his own heart. <laughs> Do you notice. In verse 31. He did not follow or take heed. Of the law of the Lord God Israel. With all of his heart. It was revolution out there. But not in here. He thought a lot of himself as this instrument of judgment that God was wielding. And yet, he didn't even judge himself. And I think such is why we get to this. I think Jehu shows us, yes, we need an even better judge than Jehu to deliver us from evil. A better and a truer judge than he which is why I am thankful that we do not worship Jehu. We have Christ. We have Jesus. You see, if you will, permit me. That's what the gospel announces to us, yes. The good news announces that there's one who is truer and better than Jehu who has come for us. Yes, Jesus comes, as it says in Isaiah 61. He has come as the liberator, the judge. In the spirit of the Lord. That's how he has come. In Psalm 85 verse 10. It talks about he is the embodiment of mercy and truth. Meeting together. That's who he is. John chapter 1. He is full of grace and truth. He is the true judge of the world. The true one who comes and takes out his sword. And judges everyone according to faith and unfaith. And he still comes, yes, to deal with the infestation of sin. See, this is the beautiful part about the good news, the gospel. Is that, yes, the surgery still happens. But who goes under the knife? Only Jesus. You want to hear the good news? The good news is that Jesus is the one who undergoes the judgment that you and I deserve. The true and the better Jehu. Who bears in his own body on the tree all of the judgments that we so rightly deserved. That's what he did for you and for me. He's the true and the better Jehu. <laughs> Wielding an altogether different form of judgment wherein he undergoes it himself. And that's how he takes away 
all of our sin and all of our stain and all of our misery. He takes it in his own body and his own self. He, the judge, undergoes the judgment. My friends, this is the good news that we have. And yes, there is coming a day. Yes, my friends. When this judge is going to come back. And this type of judgment is what is going to be wreaked on the world. Right now. This moment, this hour is the hour of repentance and renewal and regeneration. Because your true and better Jehu, Jesus himself, he has taken the judgment for you. Do you know this Jesus? If you don't, at the end of all things, this Jesus is going to look a lot more like Jehu. If you don't know him, that's what is going to be left in his wake. When the kingdom of righteousness comes and the day of the Lord is established in our realm, this is the foundation of what it's going to be built upon. Righteous, holy judgment. But right now, today, today is the day and the hour of forgiveness. The hour of redemption. The hour when the judge has undergone the judgment and his blood, yes, as we sung about so wonderfully this morning, his blood covers all of our stains. My friends, make today, this day, the day of repentance. At the feet of this king of all kings, this judge of all judges. Let us pray.